place. And uh, I hope you're encouraged by the word tonight. So let me open in prayer. Um, but let's, let's actually let's begin by by reading Revelation 14, 1 through 20, and then then I'll open in prayer and we'll examine the text. Revelation 14. Then I looked. And behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And then another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Now let's pray. Father, I love just those last words. uh, That we can rest no matter what comes our way. Because you are our rest, Christ. And Lord, there's some awful things Uh, that you tell us will happen in the last days. And and yet we know that you are directing all these awful things for good. And that you will reward those who strive after your glory and who seek to truly worship you. So I pray that you would comfort my brothers and sisters with these truths and I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would pour out your grace to help us to be true worshipers so that we would be conformed even to to these high standards that are that are illustrated here in this passage and we ask these things in christ's name 
Amen. One of the reasons that I'm a convinced premillennialist when it comes to eschatology is uh, because of my studies of the Old Testament prophets. And not just the prophet Daniel. Daniel, of course, is known for his teachings on the last times. Uh, But actually, almost every prophet, in fact, maybe every prophet, including the minor prophets, the major prophets, they speak to the... Uh, God's plan at the end of days and and God's plan for Israel at that time. And God describes the the future restoration of Israel in a way that I think it's it's impossible to interpret as being merely symbolic unless one severely twists the rules of natural interpretation. And so to truly appreciate and, and I think really understand the significance of the passage before us, we need to understand this passage in light of the Old Testament text that speak about the same things that are being described here. Now, we're not going to look at all of the Old Testament texts because there are many that we could drive on. In fact, it's a little, it's kind of long as it is, and I was having to do the painful surgery of taking out, oh man, but that's a good one, that's a good one. But I'll try to limit, to, limit just the texts that, that I think are the clearest and most helpful in understanding uh, this passage. So we're going to be doing a lot of uh, walking through Scripture uh, today. By the way, Isaiah, is the, is the screen not working? Or Oh, it is working behind me. It's just not there. Okay. Sorry, guys. Um, Daniel, if you get that. Thanks. Let's look at uh, the first point, which speaks to the 144,000 worshiping. In fact, all of this passage really is about worship. You have the, the worship of the 144,000 in this first section, and then there's a, an actual call to worship, and then there's consequences for not worshiping, and then a, a really a, a call to perseverance in genuine worship. So again, let's look at those first five verses in the chapter. Beginning at verse 1, it says, I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. So this, this heavenly scene that John now describes uh, focuses on true worship of this 144,000 people. And the main point being conveyed in this vision is that God is eventually going to fulfill all of the promises that he has made to Israel. And one day, the Israelites... As, a, as an entire nation will worship him as he, just as he's promised. So all of God's promises to redeem Israel will be accomplished. They will not fail. And just as we saw earlier in chapter 7 when it described the 144,000, uh, they represent redeem, redeemed Israel. The fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to, to Abraham and then to Moses and, and to David. And notice, in particular, that these 144,000 are depicted as standing with the Lamb. Of course, we know the Lamb is Christ the Messiah, as we saw earlier in Revelation 5. And so even though Israel has rejected her Messiah for the last 2,000 years, the time will come when their eyes are open and they will truly trust Him as their Lord and Savior. And this scene really is depicting what was promised back in Zechariah chapter 12. So if you'd flip in your Bible there, we'll look at a few verses. 
the end of that chapter, Zechariah chapter 12. says this beginning in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of had a driven in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself. And then it goes through all every family in Israel. Just list them. And then in verse chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And on that day shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And so the point being here is that one day Christ is going to redeem all of Israel. And he's going to establish his holy kingdom upon the earth through them. And these redeemed Israelites are then uh, seen as singing. Verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now this voice, it's singular, Mentioned in verse 2 is probably a combination of both Christ himself leading in song and the singing of the 144,000. And I say Christ is leading because not only is he being, is he mentioned here as the lamb, but because his voice in Revelation 1.15 is also described in the same way as many waters, sound of thunder. The voice of God in Psalm 29 is described in in the same way. And moreover, the prophet Zephaniah says that God will sing over Israel on the day when he finally redeems them. Which is exactly what's being described here. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse uh, 16, we'll begin there. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, let not your hands grow weak. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And that is what John is saying he saw. It's, it's depicting this final day when, when Israel will sing with their Messiah in praise of their redemption. And this seems to be the same united voice that's sung in Revelation 19 during the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you actually flip over a couple pages to Revelation 19, beginning verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Same description, right? And they were crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and has made his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, demonstrating that she has been cleansed. Julie, Julia has the thing you need. And so the united singing that's described here is actually also prophesied back in the book of Jeremiah. You should see this. 
Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 18. Yeah, there's a lot of Bible flipping. But it all, hopefully it also just shows the importance of studying the prophets. You understand the prophets, you understand Revelation. Jeremiah 30, verses, beginning of verse 18. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tent of Jacob, and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Verse 19. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving, and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. And if you turn over just one more page to chapter 31, verse 10, it picks up the theme. Hear a word of Yahweh, O nation. So he's, he's speaking to the Gentiles here. And declare the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him. He will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For Yahweh has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. Verse 12, note, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, which is where the land is stand, lamb is standing in Revelation. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of Yahweh, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast. I love this. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares Yahweh. So when Christ returns and establishes this kingdom, it is going to be characterized by great singing. And this song is then, you'll see, taken up by four living creatures and the 24 elders, signifying, again, that all of creation is going to join in this song sung by the 144,000. The resurrected saints join in. But you might say, but it specifically says that only the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth could learn this song. Well, I think the point that's being made there is that only believers can sing this. Unbelievers cannot sing it because th th they will have no joy. They will have no peace. They will not sing. They will groan. They will mourn. They will wail. But all the saints and these 144,000 will participate in this family worship session the saints throughout history, along with these living 144,000 on Mount Zion with Christ. And the character of these Jewish worshipers is then described in verses 4 and 5. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they've kept themselves chaste. The ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So in order to understand this description here, we need to recognize that, it, again, it's 
pointing to the fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecies, especially Zephaniah chapter 3. So if you go back there, notice how God describes the redeemed people of Israel in this day. Begin reading in verse 11 through 13. In that day, you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you've rebelled against me. For then I will remove them from your midst, your proud one, exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. So this is, going to, this is a permanent change. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them stumble. Also, if you flip to Ezekiel chapter 36, it describes the same thing will happen. Beginning in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will move the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice too, it doesn't stop there. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people. I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. So this is a promise that was made to the people of Israel. Of course, we Gentiles today, we get to participate in this. Because we're part of the new covenant. We've, had, we've been cleansed. We have the Holy Spirit within us. But on this day, all of Israel too will, will experience this cleansing. This is prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's go back one more book. Thir Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Notice the imagery. Though I was their husband, declares Yahweh, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Again, this was a promise made particularly to Israel, as is clear from the context. Of course, Gentiles who believe in Christ participate in this blessing made to Israel. But what God is prophesying here in Jeremiah 31 is that one day all of Israel will be restored and experience all the blessings of the new covenant when they stand with the lamb, the one whom they've pierced, and, it, and their eyes are open to realize that Christ was their Messiah that they had longed for. Now, the most difficult part of this prophecy to understand, though, is this description of these redeemed as being virgins. 
Now, <clears throat> it is possible that literal virgins are being uh, described here, but there's, that is a little bit problematic because uh, it, it seems to suggest that there's something superior to being a virgin. I believe it's more likely that God is uh, using figurative language here to depict, to depict their spiritual faithfulness. Again, this is contrast with the people who, who um, follow the, the harlot of Babylon by taking the mark of the beast. Moreover, um, we know there's nothing spiritually wrong with a physical union. God commanded such, actually in the garden, be fruitful and multiply. Not to mention all the promises that are made in Scripture about God's joy and, and the blessing of children. But more importantly, I think none of the Old Testament prophecies that speak to this time describe Israel as being virgins. This would be the only one, this New Testament prophecy. And so I believe um, it's, it's figurative. In the Old Testament prophecies, what you do see, as you might recall, is an emphasis on these, this redeemed Israel being holy and faithful to God. And so again, I think it's best to interpret virgins here as metaphorical of their faithfulness to their bridegroom, Christ. You know, I think one thinks of uh, the parable of the virgins in Matthew 25. In fact, the, the imagery of virgins also fits the imagery of Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb. They are cleansed, they're pure as they're presented to Christ. So this vision of this worship then continues with the declarations of three angels. The first proclaims the gospel to the world. The second proclaims the fall of Babylon. And the third angel proclaims the coming wrath on those who worship the beast or follow the beast. Beginning of verse 6, it says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. Now notice that the, what this first angel proclaims is the gospel, the gospel that was given to the nations. This is referring to the same gospel that the that Christ commissioned the apostles to proclaim as he sent them in Matthew 28 to the nations. And verse 7 tells us the substance or the content of this eternal gospel. The good news is this. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him who created all things. So this is the Bible's official summary of what is the content of the gospel. The gospel is essentially a call to worship the one true God and to repent from all unrighteousness. Of course, the means of this was accomplished by Christ through his work on the cross, through his death and resurrection. But I think it's remarkable that nothing is mentioned here of Christ's work except his coming in judgment. So just as John the Baptist first proclaimed in the wilderness, the gospel call to the nations is repent for the kingdom 
of heaven is at hand. Or as the angels again summarize here, fear God, give him glory, and worship him who created all things. And I think these, these, these commands that are given here are also just a good reminder for us as Christians. And when we're, when we're uncertain of how to proceed with life, when it seems like uh, our, our plans have come unhinged, uh, life is derailed, and, we want, and we're, we're wanting to know, what was God's will for us? How do we proceed? Well, this is a good reminder. Fear God, give Him glory, and worship Him. That's what God wants. This is God's will for your life. And, and there are a few scenes from scriptures that, that show us what such worship looks like. So let's look at those. The first I want to point to is Revelation 5.14. Where the four living creatures said amen. And the elders, who I believe represent redeemed saints, fell down and worshipped. Then turn to Joshua chapter 5. Beginning in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I'm the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 23, very similar scene. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the piece of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And then in 1 Kings chapter 18, 36, in that great story of Elijah, said at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I'm your servant, and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that that you, O Yahweh, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And then, of course, Luke 18, verse 13. New Testament picture of worship. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
So this is, these are pictures of what a proper response to the gospel looks like. Fearing God, giving Him glory, and worshiping Him in abject humility. That's what the angel calls us to. Now in verses 8 through 11, those depict the wrong response to God. And the consequences of, of not worshiping. <clears throat> First it pictures the announcement of the second angel who says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So contrast the, the virgins, the 100, faithful 144,000 with the nations who have indulged in immorality. And what this angel calls is not a, it's not a call to repentance. That was the previous angel. Said, give God glory, worship Him, fear Him. This is simply a declaration that this world will be destroyed. Now, I think it's best probably to interpret Babylon here as referring to both a literal city, but also it's representative of the entire world system dominated by Satan. Peter uses this, this name Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13, probably as symbolic of Rome. Most, most scholars believe he was writing from Rome, and he says, uh, he describes that those in Babylon greet you when he closes that letter. And it's, it's helpful to remember that Babylon uh, was not only the capital of the world empire when Jerusalem was destroyed and, and all of Israel was removed and put into exile and they were essentially scattered throughout the nations from that point on although a few returned for a short period of time until AD 70 and they were cast out again but um, it was also the first of the subsequent empires that are described in the book of Daniel the major empires that would rule the world Babylon was first Medo-Persia and then Greece and then Rome, and again, Peter probably is describing Rome as Babylon. And then, of course, there's going to be another revived Rome, as, as we see in the book of Daniel, during the last days. So this doesn't necessarily mean that Rome is going to be the capital of this future world empire. It may be. But it could also be any major city in the West. Uh, but I do think it's probably referring to an actual city that has influenced the rest of the world and dominates the rest of the world. But at the very least, Babylon represents this entire world system directed by Satan and his minions. Really, it represents what the Apostle John warned us of in 1 John 2. When he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's what's being pictured here in this announcement to fear God, give Him glory by the first angel, and the second angel, Babylon's falling. It will be destroyed. 
don't set your heart on the things of this world. So the first angel proclaims the gospel of repentance and true worship. The second angel proclaims destruction of the ungodly world system. And then the third angel announces the consequences for those who choose not to worship the one true God. It says, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So the consequence, of course, is they will be tormented by fire for eternity. Fire and brimstone, it says, or, or that, that's another, it's an old word for sulfur, most likely. Well, some will point out that the eternal torment that's being described here is with fire and brimstone can't be literal um, because, like other figurative languages in Revelation, they believe it's just merely a symbol of God's anger. But even if, if that's true, even if this is merely figurative language, one must consider what this figurative language actually suggests. And we use figurative language when we don't have words to describe something. And so we try to give something that might associate, just give us a glimpse of what it might be like. When language fails, we reach for figurative language. So if God's anger is being depicted as eternal torment of fire and sulfur, even if it's not literal, it is something horrific. In fact, the use of figure of language suggests that it's going to be even worse than literal fire. So no matter how you interpret the imagery of fire and brimstone, the punishment for failing to worship God will be torment, and it will be eternal. That's very clear there. Goes up forever and ever. That's the words for eternity throughout Scripture. And so this gives the implications of the prophecy for unbelievers. The implications for the prophecy uh, of this prophecy for the saints is then given in verses 12 through 13. Here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Now there are two implications or applications given to us in this text. The first is, persevere in your obedience and your faith. Don't stop obeying. Don't stop trusting. Don't throw in the towel. And secondly, those who die in their faith are blessed. Know that. There's a blessing in dying as you're, when you're being faithful. In other words, don't be afraid to die. 
Don't be afraid to die for Christ. Because it'll just be rest. Get to go to bed early. And we all know who work a lot that that's a blessing to go to bed early. Ben says, I want that rest. <laughs> we love, it's, it's okay to go to bed early. You're going to get up again. And not only will we get up again, notice what it says. When they awake, they will receive indescribable rewards. That's what's meant by that phrase, their deeds will follow with them. You'll wake up, and it'll be better than Christmas. And those that you will receive rewards that will neither rust nor be destroyed, nor no thief can break in and steal it. Crowns that will never lose their splendor. God will reward us for the pains, for the sacrifices, for the losses that, that we've experienced throughout our life for His sake. And notice too, the Holy Spirit Himself speaks up. It's not very many references to the Spirit, but the Spirit's like, He jumps in and He says, Yes! Let Him know it. Let Him know it's worth it. Let Him know that I see it all and they'll be, refer- they'll be rewarded. God wants us to be confident that death is really gain. It's not something to fear. It's something really to look forward to. It's rest, and then it's reward. And so let him take it. Let him take it. No one will ever regret persevering to the point of death. And the, and the Spirit just wants us to be certain of that truth. Because when, if and when that time comes, He wants us to know it's not an accident, it's an honor. And to fall asleep in peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would prepare us to be such Christians. That we would persevere through the losses that we experience now. As we strive to be faithful with you. The pain, the suffering, the griefs. But especially, Lord, when when our faith is tested to the utmost and our loyalty to you, I pray that no saint here would, would even flinch, let alone crumble. But, Lord, that they would give you glory and fear you alone and show that their worship to you is pure, that they treasure you more than anything else. Cause us to be such worshipers the church here in Forest Grove, Oregon. We pray these things in Christ's name.